Thanks to Airbnb for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Whether you're looking for some side cash or steady income, hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. Go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about an Amazon gift card offer for $100 for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, February 25th, and we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio via Skype, as usual, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, just great. Sunny day for the first time in about a week down here, so it's... Yeah, I think uh, we got got rid of the rain up here, I think, too, finally, at least uh, for a day or so. It's been kind of... uh, been kind of weather that wants you to make it wants you to makes you want to stay inside for a while yeah definitely i i hope it stays like this but i have a feeling it's gonna rain for another 30 days and 30 nights again <laughs> well spring's just around the corner <laughs> on today's show we're gonna dig into apple's latest foray into services we're gonna talk about an acquisition in the home mortgage space we'll take a gander at buffett's annual letter and as always we'll have one to watch But today, we're going to begin with a listener email, and this question comes from Noel Sayers in Freezing Cold Edmonton. And I tacked on the freezing cold there, Matt, because that's what he said. He said he was sending the email from Freezing Cold Edmonton. But Noel says, hey, team, what do you think about a segment or episode on the stock exchanges subsector, including uh, ticker CME, CBOE, ICE, and NDAQ? Uh, I'd appreciate comments on the factors that impact these stocks, a comparison of the different company financials, and favorite picks. Well, Noel, you're in luck, my man. We are going to talk about this today for you. And Matt, I'm going to kick this right over to you because I know this is uh, some research that you've recently done into this space. Um, it's an interesting one for sure. Uh, what, what, are you, uh, what, are, what are the main points that you want to hit here for Noel? Well, the main ways that these companies make money is from trading volume. So this kind of is an interesting dynamic in in the market. Um, if you have kind of a market that's pretty much just slowly going straight up, nothing exciting, low volatility, these companies can actually suffer because trading volumes are low and that's how they make their money. Like we saw over the past you know, three or four years, for the most part, it's been a pretty calm market. Yeah. When things start when markets start dropping or volatility spikes, these companies can actually start doing better than they were before because people are you know, trading more actively. They're buying options contracts to hedge positions, things like that. So these companies can actually do better. The biggest risk, I would say, especially if you think the Democrats are going to start really taking control of the government, is regulation. Um, there's a lot of potential regulations, especially when it comes to futures markets, that people should be on the lookout for. But having said that, my favorite in the group that you mentioned is CBOE, just because they have a pretty huge market share in in the options market. Um, and that's the Chicago Mercantile, right? Uh, this is a Chicago Board Option Exchange. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, that would be so CME. That's also another good one. They have a very good market share in what they do. Oh, you said CBOE. Um, I'm sorry, we had a little bit of a uh, audio glitch there, but yeah, CBOE. Okay. Well, they're both great. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but CBOE has about a 70% market share in options. And anytime you have that kind of market share in something where you can actually do well when the market's going down because of high trading volume, I think it's a pretty good business. So in that space, 
like I said, in the financial sector, that's not my favorite space to invest in. I think there's better value to be found in commercial banks and some of the smaller banks we've been talking about and a lot of the war on cash stocks, which you didn't want us to talk about, <laughs> but I just snuck in there. You see how I did that? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> having said that, CBOE is, I, in my opinion, a great business and one that I would not mind owning in my own portfolio under the right so, circumstances. So, let me ask you a question here, because you mentioned something at the beginning of this, talking about volume. And, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, these 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 guys want to see more activity. I mean, that gives them a chance to make more money. And I get that. I mean, obviously, we invest... Uh, with a bit more of a of a hope and not really uh, trading too terribly much, so I don't know that we would be um, on paper at least the best the best customers for these exchanges. But when we talk about the the options um, index, there we talk about CBOE. It just strikes me that with options, there's inherently more volume when it comes to options based on the strategy that you're employing from the very beginning. I mean, options seem to me to just inherently have more volume anyway. So, with that, is number one, is that a correct assumption on my part? And then number two, if so, I mean, does that really, that's what could separate CBOE from, from maybe these others, is the fact that they're going to have just inherently more volume anyway? Yeah, it's kind of um, like how I recommend Walmart as a retailer from time to time, just because they do well in pretty much any market. Gotcha. You're correct that options are a more high-volume activity, even for long-term traders. One of our full services recommends option strategies for long-term traders. So, in that mindset, there's a lot of trading volume that's just options, uh, more so than stocks. But option strategies are really useful as hedges, especially when times get uncertain, when things are volatile, either to the upside or downside. A lot of people try to hedge through options. And so, you'll see a real big spike in volatility. I mean, some of the more volatile quarters in the market have been CBOE's best quarters. And so, same can be said for some of these other exchanges you mentioned. So, it, yeah, um, options is definitely a high volatility, or a good play on volatility, but tends to have high frequency volume Anytime. I feel like probably these businesses are pretty um, safe plays in the sense that we know they're going to be fairly consistent businesses uh, as far as the demand for their services. I mean, in good times and in bad, the markets are going to be open. There's going to be volume, and these these companies are going to be doing their thing. Um, and so, I mean, I notice it just does seem like there's a consistent sort of. I don't want to say they're all riddled with debt, but you notice that their balance sheets do. Carry some debt, some a little bit more than others, but it would strike me they're kind of like a utility in that regard, right? I mean, they can get away with doing that because they can rely on a pretty steady flow of business in in both good times and in bad. Yeah, I kind of I'd liken that to almost a commercial bank in some senses. That mm -hmm. you know they have steady revenue coming in from you know people depositing money and loaning out that money and. It, it's a forever business, so it's not something that's going to be easily disrupted um, unless somebody creates a new stock exchange or a new options exchange, which the barriers to entry are just huge. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's almost like a utility-like income, especially when you get to like a 70% market share like I was just talking about with CBOE. It can become utility-like income. Yeah, and you, you mentioned something there in regard to barriers to entry, and that's the one thing that stands out to me with these types of businesses. The barriers to entry from a number of perspectives are probably pretty high. I mean, from a from a tech perspective, from, certainly from a regulatory perspective. Um, I mean, it, it's just it would take a lot of work for a new competitor to jump into that space and really uh, 
start taking share away from from some of these established players. So I mean, from a competitive advantage perspective, from a competitive position perspective, these are businesses I think that hold fairly admirable competitive positions. Yeah, definitely. Um, it would be really tough to, like I said, make an options exchange that significantly steals share from CBOE, especially for somebody, even for someone who's trying to do it at a, on a low fee and doesn't care on, about making a profit. It's just getting past the regulatory headaches and just the established relationships in, in that space, especially. You imagine trying to make a, a competitor to the Nasdaq at this stage? <laughs> no, I, I mean it, it, it. Yeah, right. It's it's something you laugh about. Like it, it, that's that's how good of an advantage they have is that I mentioned competitor and you laugh about it. <laughs> so that that's that in itself tells you what a good solid forever business these are. Yeah, and and it also just strikes me, and we'll we'll move on to the next topic here. But uh, it, it also just strikes me, and you know, a lot of times we look at businesses; they're really big businesses with tremendous balance sheets and tremendous resources, you could have all the money in the world and it doesn't mean you can go in there and just immediately start competing, right? I mean, finances are just one part of the puzzle, one piece of the puzzle there. And so, I'd imagine even if you had someone that wanted to go in there and compete, I mean, we always like to just sort of frame it on the investing team and saying, okay, I'm going to give you you know, $20 billion. Now, go in there and compete with these guys. How are you going to do it? And so, it shows you really that money is not the only thing. And you look at companies like Facebook or like Alphabet, they have obviously very admirable uh, competitive positions in, in regard to the markets they serve. Um, but money isn't necessarily everything. I mean, they can't just go in there and do whatever they want. It still takes some expertise uh, when you're pursuing a, a given market. And so, that's probably something worth noting with, with these companies too. But Noel, I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And uh, I hope we were able to give you a little bit more insight there as to the market itself. And clearly, Matt thinks uh, a little bit more highly of CBOE uh, than the other names you mentioned. So, hey, you got a recommendation out of it too, buddy. Um, okay, hey, listen, Matt. We wanted to talk a little bit today about Apple's uh, new foray. It looks like into a credit card offering with uh, one of our favorite banks here on Industry Focus Financials, Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, I got to admit, when I was reading this thing, my first my first inclination was to say this is not going to matter at all, and then I. I Took a step back and said, "Wait a minute. Okay, let's keep an open mind and think about how this could matter, how this could play out uh, for Apple." Um, after giving it some some deliberate thought, I came to the same conclusion. I just don't know that this is something that's going to matter really at all. But I could be totally wrong. What's your take on this? I'm with you in the sense that I don't think it's going to matter that much to Apple. <clears throat> I think that. They really don't. It doesn't matter who their credit card partner is. Whoever gives them the best deal is who they should probably go with. It could matter big time to Goldman Sachs, depending. And a lot of the early reviews are exactly what you just said that this is not going to be a needle moving credit card. It's not going to be a big deal. The rewards rate is nothing you can't get anywhere else. So, what we know so far, uh, based on a Wall Street Journal report, is that the new Apple Goldman Sachs credit card will offer a 2% reward rate on most purchases, which is not unheard of. Um, I could ramble off a list of five credit cards that do the same thing. But how they phrased it, and it's kind of vague, is higher rewards on Apple products. Does that mean a 3% rate on Apple products? In that case, you could probably find something that beats it with their you know rotating categories or an Amazon.com, just buying them on Amazon and getting the Amazon credit card. Yeah, but how many Apple products are you going out there and buying? Just as a, I mean, I buy a phone and maybe buy you know a set of headphones or whatever, but... I mean, it's not like you're going out and buying like Apple products on a regular basis, right? Well, that's fair, but Apple products are expensive. True. So, and and 
if you have something like a 5% reward rate and combine it with something like, you know, zero interest financing on any Apple purchase forever, then you're, now you got my attention. <laughs> yeah. um, so the way most credit cards work is you have a 0% introductory period, say like 0% interest for the first 12 months you'll have the card. If you were to offer something like 0% interest for 12 months, anytime you have the Apple, buy something from Apple, regardless of how long you've had the card, that could be an interesting proposition, something like that. So the big question mark is what is it, what do they mean by better rewards on Apple products? Yeah. Um, and like I said, even, no matter what the answer to that is, it's probably not going to matter to Apple that much. This could be huge for Goldman Sachs because they're just trying to build up their consumer banking business. And I really can't think of a better way to break into the credit card space than to partner with Apple. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I tell you, you know, the other thing I noticed here that I was, um, you know, at least happy to see is that they're going to be utilizing uh, MasterCard's uh, rails to, to, to make this all work. So, I mean, when we talk about payments, you, it's, you'd be very hard pressed to, to not see MasterCard or Visa playing a role in that transaction in some way, shape, or form. And it sounds like MasterCard is getting the nod here over Visa. And, and again, I mean, uh, probably not the biggest impact to MasterCard's business, but I think it would be uh, certainly some additional incremental revenue that wouldn't hurt the cause. It's going to come down to whether this card offers value over what else is on the market, which right now competition in the credit card industry has really never been higher. Yeah. So there are some pretty good credit card offers out there right now. So that's kind of what all the reviews are getting at. Where this will need to be a real, like, unique product to move the needle and for I think either it, company. It sounds like they're trying to make that unique by, or they're trying to present that unique uh, offering by by incorporating it to your phone. They integrate the card into your phone, and and it's supposed to let consumers set spending goals, track your rewards, manage your balances. So it it in in theory it should help folks manage their money a little bit a little bit better, perhaps a little bit easier to do if you're just, you know, using your iPhone to do all of this stuff. Um, and, and maybe there's something there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like online banking certainly gives you all of these tools already. It's pretty easy to manage your money with whatever online banking tools you had, card or or bank. Um, so I, you know, again, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't see this offering as, as something geared towards someone like me, um, given that I've already, you know, got credit cards that I've established and I'm happy with. But I, I could certainly see a younger generation of users that are coming up that are looking to uh, get their first credit card or perhaps add another credit card to their arsenal. Maybe this does uh, provide some some value add in those additional services and being able to, to manage your money a little bit better. Yeah, like for somebody like me or you, it would have to be, like I said, something kind of extra special to get me to, to sign up for yet another credit card when yeah. I have something I'm very happy with. So I, I will we'll have to see. There's still a few big question marks, but I think it could it has the potential to be a bigger deal for Goldman than it does for Apple. Okay. Um, hey, so we were off last week due to the market being closed, but there was some news that cycled through, and uh, it is directly relevant to a company that we've talked about here a few times on Industry Focus. Um, listeners probably recognize the name Ellie May. We wanted to give this a quick. Uh, a quick look just to make sure everybody caught this, but Ellie May, the the mortgage software provider, uh, has entered into an agreement to be acquired by Toma Bravo, which is a private equity uh, entity that is going to buy Ellie May for $99 a share. Uh, that's an all-cash offer. 
And, um, you know, I've had Ellie Mae as, as one to watch for a number of weeks. It's a stock I've owned, uh, still own. Um, eh, this is a little bittersweet, Matt. I'm not going to lie. I mean, <laughs> it's always nice to, to realize gains on our investments. Uh, you know, on the same token, I kind of wished we could watch Ellie Mae run a little bit further, but it looks like Ellie may be leaving the public markets and uh, becoming a privately held company here soon. Uh, what what did you think when you saw that news? I was happy for you. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. It's very yeah, thoughtless of you. It's always it, you know credit where credits <laughs> due. You've been suggesting that you got it on my radar. Yeah. I wish I had listened to you and bought some shares. I said thoughtless. I really meant thoughtful. I was just giving you a hard time. <laughs> but one thing, kind of, I would like people to know about this is um, that the deal could get even better. Normally, when a an acquisition offer like this takes place, I suggest that people sell the stock. Um, you're not going to do much. It, the offer that it was made is for $99 a share. Um, so the stock is trading right around $90 a share as I write this. I'm uh, looking over there. It is 98 and some change right now. So it may seem like a good idea to just go ahead and get rid of the stock and move on to something else. But like you said, you're, you're holding on your shares, and I bet I can guess why. Um, there is what's called a 35-day go shop provision in the deal, which allows Ellie Mae to try to find an even better offer. So it looks like the market's somewhat pricing this in. So if you hold on to your shares right now, worst case scenario, you're going to get $99 a share, which is exactly what they're worth. So there's pretty much, unless you think that there's going to be regulatory obstacles to this deal going through, which I don't foresee at all, um, then you're going to get your $99 back. And there's always the possibility that somebody could swoop in and try to acquire them for a higher price. So very little downside here with a lot of upside is kind of my take. Yeah. I mean, speaking as a shareholder, I agree with you. I'm going to hang on to the shares that I have because it does feel like, I mean, $99 is going to be basically the worst case scenario. Um, I don't anticipate any type of regulatory issues with this acquisition. LMA is still a fairly small company in the grand scheme of things. Um, I'd love to see a competing bid come in there. I'm not really sure I'm counting on it. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in, uh, in just around a few weeks or so, we'll we'll have our answer one way or another. But yeah, like like you said, it's no no real no real cost in hanging on to that hanging on to that position and just uh, in waiting. I mean, I guess everybody could sit there and argue the opportunity cost for being able to put that money to work somewhere else, but you got to have a better idea in the first place, Matt, and then you got to be right too. So sometimes that doesn't work out as well, <laughs> at least timing wise. Um, so yeah, yeah. at least hang on for the thirty-five days. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and that's what I'm going to do, and, and I think that's what uh, uh, you know most investors would probably be best served doing as well. Uh, once again, we just want to thank Airbnb for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. You know, whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. You worried about your property? Well, Airbnb offers a host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. It's free to list your home, and you're the boss when you host on Airbnb. Host when you want, how you want, list one bedroom or the entire place. It's all up to you. Connect with people from around the world, make new friends, meet new people. You can even make money while you travel, which is something Airbnb hosts often do. The bottom line is you're in control. Availability, prices, house rules, guest interactions, all your decisions. Industry-focused listeners can go to airbnb.com slash fool and start hosting, and there's a sweet deal for you, too. You'll receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by May 30th. 
Again, that's a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by May 30th. Just go to airbnb.com slash fool. That's A-I-R-B-N-B dot com slash fool and start hosting. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Matt, Saturday morning, I have a... I have an idea what you were doing Saturday morning. Now, granted, I'm in Virginia. You're in South Carolina. But I bet you we were doing the same thing. Uh, were you reading Buffett's letter Saturday morning? I was, and I was writing about it. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, my wife loves these two weekends a year when something significant happens with Berkshire because Buff- that always happens on a Saturday. So I have to leave the kids with my wife and you know read what old Uncle Warren has to say. <laughs> Well, your kids eventually will be old enough where you can just let them sleep in and you can just wake up early and get that. Because that's basically what I did. The kids were still sleeping in my house. I just woke up, had some coffee, sat there and read the letter. It was a, it was a peaceful time to do it. Um, hey, so listen, I mean, all sorts of opinions, all sorts of little, you know, nice saws to pull out of his letters every year. Um, what what was what stood out to you in this year's letter? Um well, the fact that they're still having trouble making a big acquisition, the biggest question on my mind going into the letter – well, let me back up. The biggest question going on my mind into reading what they what Warren Buffett did with his stock portfolio this quarter was the market was tanking in the fourth quarter. He must have been on a buying spree. Well, it turns out he wasn't. Yeah, what's the got, deal with that? Right. So that I was. was. Big question. I, I was hoping he would have spent like $50 billion in the stock market during the fourth <laughs> quarter. But that didn't happen. He was actually barely a net buyer of stocks. Killing me. Um, and he keeps mentioning how valuations are just insane when it comes to acquisitions. He mentioned this in his letter. Um, on CNBC this morning, he said they were Berkshire was very close to making a really large acquisition in the fourth quarter. I'm curious as to what it is. He won't I was going to say, what was that, man? What I was know. it? I'm, I'm wondering what it could possibly be. He said it was a big acquisition, even by Berkshire standards. Yeah. So – um, and in his letter, so now he said that stocks were still the best way to put money to put money to work. And now that we see that Berkshire was trying to make a big acquisition, and so they were probably holding cash back for that, which is my guess, my big takeaway to why we didn't see more stock buying activity. But and he also said going forward in 2019 to expect the same. He said valuations remain. I mean, not not his word, but what he's trying to say is valuations are kind of ridiculous right now. When it comes to what companies want to be bought out, um, so expect stocks to be the best driver of value going forward, and that's what Berkshire wants to put its money into. Um, it's also worth noting that Berkshire did buy back a little bit of its own stock this quarter, not a ton, but that Warren Buffett says that over time he expects these to continue. Um, in fact, Berkshire is dropping book value as their um, as Buffett's preferred, you know, bench performance benchmark because and. Uh, the buybacks was one big reason. Yeah, he said um, not only do um, Berkshire's businesses distort the book value over the year, over the years, but the buybacks, as you know, he buys back shares at a premium to book value. You're not going to find Berkshire for less than book value. As he buys shares for greater than book value, it's going to further distort the the company's price to book ratio, and so they're just scrapping book value altogether and. I take that as a positive sign that Buffett expects future buybacks because he can only buy back stock when 
him and Charlie Munger agree that it's a good deal. So it seems like he still thinks that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, th- I think everything you said, I, I, I agree with totally. I thought it was interesting to hear him harp a little bit on that $20 billion cash position. He wasn't going to breach that. He always wanted to make sure that they were never caught um, needing cash for any reason. We always get that question uh, from listeners, you know, how much cash should I keep in my portfolio at any given time? And and that's always a debate. Everybody's got their own sort of opinion on there on that and and what they do. But but it was just an interesting perspective there. I encourage folks to go read that letter and and read that part about what he said in regard to keeping uh, cash in his balance sheet. Um, and you know, the other thing that he was talking about. That made me, you know, it, it got me a little bit. I was a little bit giddy when I was reading this, Matt. You know, I'm not, not going to lie. I mean, now I'm not a Berkshire shareholder anymore. I I sold those shares a little while back because I felt like to me there was more opportunity in in Markel given the size of Markel versus the size of Berkshire. It was less about Berkshire and more about just the opportunity with Markel. But when he was reading. Uh, when he was talking about, he was gushing about their wholly owned businesses being that most valuable grove in 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 the uh, in the Berkshire model. There, that really, I get excited about that because I see Markel doing the same kind of thing with their venture side of their business, and and you know they're just getting started there. But that Markel venture side of the business now it brought in two billion dollars uh, in revenue over the past year, and I think we've seen a lot of growth there, and, and I do think that they are trying to build that. Side of the business out very much the way that that Charlie and Warren have built out Berkshire Hathaway. So, uh, just just I don't know, made me think a little bit you know, of of the position in Markel and how, how happy I am to be an owner of those shares. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I own both. Um, I think Berkshire still has it. It still has market beating potential, but it's not nothing that's going to really excite you or you know, it's not going to beat the. It's not going to return twenty percent a year for the next two decades. But Markel certainly could. Yeah, well, and not that it will, but it could. It could, yeah, yep. It's, uh, it's not possible with Berkshire. So. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly we recommend anyone listening uh, go to go to the Berkshire Hathaway uh, website there and click on that uh, annual letters tab and, and read the most recent letter. They're just always, always there's something always in there that makes you see a new angle. Uh, that's why we read them, and they're always really enjoyable. Uh, before we tap into Twitter here, Matt, I do want to read off one housekeeping note for our listeners. You know, this week we are going to be in Austin, Texas, and when I say we, Matt, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to be in Austin, Texas, so we're going to miss you there, buddy. But I'm going to be in Austin, Texas, and Chris Hill's going to be in Austin, Texas, and Aaron Bush is going to be there, and a lot of other fools are going to be there, and we're actually going to have a listener meetup. Um, on Wednesday. So if you are in the Austin, Texas area and you want to join us uh, for the listener meetup this coming Wednesday, the 27th, just drop us an email at radio at fool.com and we'll send you all the deets. Uh, well, I can actually mention that um, I'll be in Vegas next week. Hey now. Along with a uh, fellow industry focused regular Dan Klein. And, and if anyone wants to meet up with us, it's nothing official, but. Well, very we'll good. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> That's right. You sent me a note there a little while back. We were going to get some more content for the shows here coming up. That's right. I forgot yep. about that. All right. All right. Well, good deal. We got Austin, Texas, and we got Vegas. Vegas, baby. So I'm not I'm not as cool as the bunch that Jason just <laughs> mentioned, but well, if anyone wants to, you know, meet up with me and Dan. I would beg to differ. 
I would beg to differ. Uh, <laughs> Dan's, more fun. Dan's more fun than I am. You guys are all you guys are all good. <laughs> uh, before we get into our ones to watch for the coming week, just wanted to read off a couple of tweets that uh, you know. Hey, listen. Whenever we read tweets that uh, sing our praise here, they make us smile. So we want to read them off here again. And uh, tweet here from at J at J Longstaff one one two three one or I'm sorry one one two three. He said, I was really impressed with CEO Dennis Zember. He seems like a good guy to have running the show. We'll work toward getting a position started. Nice work. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. It was a fun interview, and I agree. Dennis Zember does seem like a really nice guy, and I feel good about the fact that he's running that uh, ship over there at Ameris Bank Corp. And at Vivek Chirps wrote, the trio of Motley Fool Money, Market Foolery, and Industry Focus is wholesome education for anyone interested in investing. Best of all, it's free. Listen to Vivek. Listen to him. That's exactly right. We are wholesome. We are free. We will make you smarter and richer and happier. Okay, Matt, it's that time of week. We got one to watch. Uh, looking at the stocks on our radar here this coming week, what is your one to watch? I have to go with Square. Ah. I'm sure a lot of people won't be surprised. They report earnings on Wednesday. I want. I have a few questions in my mind. Of course, I'd love to see them give an update on how their cash app is doing. They generally don't. They historically haven't released too many concrete details about how many people are using it. But if they do, it's usually at their fourth quarter year-end results. So I'm looking to see about that. I want to see if their growth is continuing to accelerate in top-line revenue. Um, I want to see that the um, their business lending platform is doing well, especially their installment, um, the Square installments that is recently rolled out. Uh, we barely got any data on that in the third quarter because I think it had just started. So I'm curious to see how that did. And... I want to see that their payment volume is picking up and that you know their business is just doing well all around. Their, their growth has been extremely exciting for the past few quarters, and I hope to see that continue, and I don't have any reason to think it won't. Yep, me too. I hope to see good things from them. Um, I'm going to be keeping an eye on Mercado Libre, ticker M-E-L-I. Their earnings come out tomorrow, Tuesday the 26th. Uh, we know this is the e-commerce giant of Latin America, but they also have integrated their payment solution, Mercado Pago. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's an interesting point uh, management noted last quarter that in September, for the first time ever, Mer- Mercado Pago not only processed more total payment transactions off platform than on Melly's, than on Mercado Libre's platform marketplaces, but also that total payment transactions surpassed the 100 million mark in a single quarter. So, you know, we had talked about this, I think, a couple of shows back, different uh, companies that could be, you know, war on cash considerations. And, and I remember saying Mercado Libre is certainly one of them. It's because of that right there that the Mercado Pago that they've integrated into their uh, into their uh, ecosystem, so to speak. Uh, so, so Mercado Libre will be on my radar. I'll be paying attention to their earnings out tomorrow. Uh, Matt, hey, listen, always a pleasure to talk with you. Glad you could join us this week. You have a good rest of the week. All right. Yeah, I'll see you guys next Monday from Vegas. For sure. And as always, people <laughs> on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. Austin, good to see you back behind the glass there, buddy. Hope you're feeling well. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back. 